We'll begin with prayer here this morning. It's good to see everybody in their places with sunshiny faces, <laughs> as the saying goes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this glorious day and your mercy and grace. And we do pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, that we would see clear distinctions between error and truth, and that we would look at baptism and the Lord's Supper as you've truly ordained them, means by which we may know your promises, remember them, and persevere until the last day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody need a handout? It'll be the same handout that we looked at last and used last time. So we'll just keep those. Um, my goal is to get through this slide today, and we're just kind of slow on this one. It'll pick up after today, I promise. But uh, here we've been talking about where we disagree with the doctrines of Calvin. And the sources that I've been using are either Calvin, his institutes, or Westminster Confession. Those are the two big ones. But we'll also look at some from the Heidelberg Confession. That's often referred to by the Reformed theologians as the most ecumenical of the Reformed uh, traditions. So we'll, we'll look at some of the Heidelberg Confession as well. But today, I want to show you where we've been thus far. We've looked at the relationship between the covenants, and we talked about how we disagreed with the Reformed notion that everything can be divided between either the covenant of works, which was pre-fall, or the covenant of grace after the fall. Why? Well, because the Mosaic covenant, according to the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers, was different far different than the covenant of grace that we see revealed to us in the new covenant. In fact, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, remember the prophet said, God is going to make a new covenant for you, and it's not going to be like the old covenant. So there was a distinction. We saw the relationship between the law and the gospel. We talked about the third use of the law. Is the law really to be used for the sanctification of believers? We show that that is not the usage of the law that the law is designed to show us that we're wretched sinners who need Christ. We also talked about the nature of the new covenant church, and we talked about how the Reformed tradition believes that even infants can be partakers of the new covenant community besides having saving faith. In other words, apart from having saving faith. Well, this is where baptism comes in, and that's what we're going to be focusing on here in our beginning portion of our class the purpose and recipients of baptism is an arena in which we would differ with Calvin. Let me just read to you something that I wrote when I had given a message. I preached a sermon on this, and I said this. I said, quote, Reformed doctrine sees baptism of infants as a way in which infants can be partakers of the new covenant without having faith. Essential to Reformed doctrine is the covenant of grace, they believe that just as infants who were circumcised under the old covenant were partakers of the covenant of grace, so too infants who are baptized also become partakers of the benefits of the new covenant. So do you see if you believe that the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant are one and the same? Yes, there's different, different obligations that you have in each, but you can see why the Reformed would say that just as babies were circumcised, you can have babies that are now baptized. That's what they believe. And so they believe that baptizing babies is a way in which they can enter into the new covenant community. What's the problem with that? The only way that any of us can enter into the new covenant community is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the big problem. So let's look at some quotes. I have some quotes here that I'll read to you. This is Calvin on baptism. And listen to what he says. He says, quote, Certainly if circumcision was a literal sign, so notice he links it back to circumcision, he says the same view must be taken of baptism. Since in the second chapter to the Colossians, the apostle makes the one to be not a bit more spiritual than the other. For he says that in Christ we are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So stop there. Notice Calvin says proof that there is a relationship between circumcision of the Old Testament and baptism of the New is found in Colossians 2. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. 
But you remember, Bob taught about that not long ago, and we learned that the circumcision in Colossians 2 has nothing to do with Old Testament circumcision of eight-day-old baby boys. It's nothing physical. As you'll see, it's a spiritual circumcision. But let me read to you another source. This is from Heidelberg, and then we'll look at the scriptures on this. I want you to understand that Westminster cites Colossians 2 as evidence between the connection between baptism and circumcision. We just saw Calvin cited Colossians 2. Heidelberg Confession does the same thing. Listen to what Heidelberg, this is their catechism. Question 74, here's the question. Should infants be baptized? The answer, again, this is a major reform source. They say yes. For they as well as adults belong to God's covenant and community, and no less than adults are promised forgiveness of sin through Christ's blood. Therefore, they too, that's children, ought to be incorporated into the church, the Christian church, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, and distinguished from children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, in whose place baptism was instituted, in the New Testament, and guess what passage they cite? Colossians chapter 2. So, let us look at Colossians chapter 2. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians 2, 11 through 13. And what we're going to do is let's weigh out for ourselves whether or not the Reformed claim that there is a one-to-one relationship between circumcision and baptism is true. Let's look at the major text that they use. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Every reform source uses this. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Notice here, back in beginning in verse 11, the hymn here will be Christ. Notice it says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, let's just stop there in verse 11. First thing we have to define is what does Paul mean when he says that we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands? Now, notice Calvin, when he quotes that, is trying to use that as a connection between circumcision of the Old Testament and now baptism in the New. And the reason why is when you get to verse 12, The very next verse, Paul will mention baptism. But here's the problem with that. By the Apostle Paul using the phrase, a circumcision made without hands, he could not have been any clearer by pointing out that this is not a physical circumcision. In fact, the phrase with hands or made with hands is something that is always seen in both the Old and the New Testament is that which is deficient or comes from man. It's something that doesn't measure up to the holiness and the quality of what God does. In fact, Bob had mentioned that in our studies in Acts. In fact, turn your Bibles to Acts 741. I'll give you a little review of what Bob taught us when we were in Acts 7. Please turn your Bibles to Acts 741. So what I'm going to do is show you evidence that this phrase, the circumcision made without hands, if something is made with hands, it is sinful, deficient, It is less than that which is from God. And I'm going to show you evidence from the scripture that the phrase made with hands, implemented with hands, done by hands, is seen to be something that is either sinful or deficient. Acts 7.41. Now here, in Acts 7, you have Stephen giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. And he's preaching, and he's preaching here about David and how David... Uh, Well, I'm sorry, later on he talks about David. But here in Acts 7.41, he talks about the golden calf incident. And the golden calf incident, remember, was where because the Israelites could not see Moses, what did they do? They didn't rely upon their lawgiver to give them tangible words of God, but instead they made for themselves an idol that they could see. So it's the idea they couldn't see their mediator who gave them the words of God. So they made a god that they could see. They lived by sight rather than by faith. So listen to what he says of that incident. Acts 7.41, Stephen says, At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
So notice the works of their hands. The works of their hands was not something that was godly. It was idolatry. Now stay there in chapter 7. Skip ahead now to, uh, to verse 48, seven verses later. Now this is about David. Remember David tells, remember in, this is in 2 Samuel 7. He tells God that he was going to make a house for him. God says, Have, am I a God that dwells in a building made with human hands? No, I'm going to make a house for you, David. That's the point. So Acts 7, 48 through 49, Stephen's recounting that. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, verse 49, this is from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? So notice in verse 48, does the Most High dwell in a house made with human hands? God doesn't need the works of men. Men need the works of God. That's what we see. The works of man's hands are deficient, and circumcision made by hands was something that was designed to pass away. In fact, in Psalm 115.4, just let me give you one more verse. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. All over the scripture, something that is of man's hands, it's deficient. It's either sinful, deficient, it is short of what God does. So, by Paul using that phrase in Colossians 2.11, saying that this circumcision is one without hands, you can understand in Colossians 2.11 that Paul is not talking about physical circumcision, a physical circumcision that was designed to pass away as the Mosaic Covenant became obsolete. What's he referring to? Well, we're given an indication of what Paul is referring to, At the end of verse 11, notice he says, it's a removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, one of the things we have to wrestle with is this phrase, circumcision of Christ, is in what's called a genitive construction in the Greek. So we have to debate with ourselves, is this a subjective genitive? Meaning Jesus is the subject and he's doing the circumcising? Or is it an objective genitive, namely somehow Jesus Christ is the one who's being circumcised? In, in, in what sense would he be circumcised? Well, I think Bob proved, I think very conclusively, this is probably rendered best as a subjective genitive. Now, why would that be? Well, here Christ would be performing a circumcision of our heart. The circumcision that every human being needs Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God commanded the Israelites to circumcise their heart. They couldn't do it. So much so that when you get to Deuteronomy 30, he has to tell them, I will circumcise your heart for you. I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. And lo and behold, here the apostle Paul is talking about the circumcision that Christ affects. In Christ, our hearts are changed so that you and I can believe so that you and I can obey. We were given a heart transplant. And remember, the heart to the biblical writers isn't just the organ that pumps the blood, nor is it just the center of the emotions. No, the heart is the center of thought life for the biblical writers. Yes, it's our emotions, but it's more than that. It is our intellect and it is our will. So what we needed was a circumcision of our heart or our thought life where we could be enabled to believe and obey. That's exactly what Paul is referring to. So notice then, Paul isn't talking about physical circumcision at all. He's not talking about physical circumcision at all. So why is the Reformed tradition saying, look, here's a relationship between physical circumcision of the Old Testament and baptism of the new? It's not there. Whatever Paul's talking about, he couldn't make it any clearer that he's not talking about physical circumcision. It is the circumcision made without hands. He is certainly talking about the spiritual circumcision of the heart. Now, further proof that that's true, notice in verse 12, now we have a link to baptism. But it's not a physical circumcision, it's of the circumcision of the heart. Notice he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him 
from the dead. Now, notice the link to baptism. What is, a, what is baptism about? In a moment, I'm going to show you three things it's about. It symbolizes regeneration. It symbolizes the washing away of sin. But the main element behind baptism, it is a picture or a sign of our union or identity with Christ. When you and I were baptized, it's a symbol once and for all that we are with him. That just as he died, we died with him positionally. Just as he was raised from the dead, you and I are raised to the newness of life. In fact, we'll read Romans 6 here in a minute. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I'm going to take a guess here as to where you're going because I like this. And, yeah. and I think that Calvin made a, what we would call a false parallel. Yes. And I think what we're doing here is we're going to bring this, make this into a true parallel. Yes. And just as circumcision is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Yes. It's not the covenant itself. It's the sign of it. That's the, I think that's a good parallel. Eric, that is very well said. I wish I could have said it that well myself. That's exactly right. So what you're pointing out is the parallel is between circumcision of the heart and baptism. What is circumcision of the heart? Is that part of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the new? It's part of the new. Isn't in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 that this new covenant would come the prophet says, and he would give them a new heart, not like the old heart. He would cause them to walk in his statutes. Um, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five. he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is all about the circumcision of the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart. That's exactly what Paul's referring to. So you're right, that's the parallel. It's between that and baptism, absolutely. And Hebrews has a lot to say about all these things. Absolutely. In Hebrews 9, in Hebrews 9, it says that um, the, all the, it describes all the ministries they had going on. Yes. In the tabernacle. And, it, and then it says um, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This was a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Okay, so then it goes on to say the blood of Christ will cleanse our conscience through the Spirit. For um, nine fourteen, yeah. So the cleansing of the conscience is That's internal, and in the same chapter, it talks about the things made with hands yeah. being insufficient. Right. That's another good. So the circumcised heart is yeah. already predicted. God will do it. Yes. The cleansed conscience, the new heart, the work on the inside. Right. So why would you turn that? into something made with hands. Yes. The baptism of a baby. Right, right. Well, because you're trying to create a new Israel out of the church and negate the promises to the real Israel. That's right. That's and so right. their uh, systematic theology, which is contrived, yeah. is making it impossible to do biblical exegesis. And I noticed when I preached through Colossians yeah. that... Some of my better scholars were actually reformed. Yeah. They got to Colossians too. They couldn't bring themselves to claim this was infant baptism. Isn't that Because something? they had a duty to write a commentary. Right. And even they knew it didn't say that. Bob, that's very important. Remember you and I did radio on that. And I remember you pointing out sometimes these scholars, their professional, their professional reputation supersedes the confessional dogmas that they want to hold to. In other words, they know that they'll be laughed at if they don't. If they give a really bad exegesis of a verse in a commentary, they're going to be shown to be bad at doing exegesis because they can't defend their own position. Right. And they don't want to do that because then who's going to want to hire them to write another commentary? Exactly. Because they can't get it right. Right, that's right. So, dear ones... When our traditions make it impossible to do biblical exegesis 
the way we need to do it, because we believe in Scripture alone, that's a sign that we need to ditch our traditions. <laughs> that's right. Amen. Well said. That's exactly right. Now, let's think about baptism. What is it to us, biblically, and I'll show you this, and what is it to the Reformed? To make it very succinct, to us, baptism is a sign of entrance into the new covenant that you had by faith alone in Christ alone. It is a sign of the new covenant. An analogy I like to use is think about if someone says to you, you, you're a mom or a dad and you're at work, and they say, I'd like to see your family. And you pull out a picture and it's in your wallet and you show them your family picture. Would the person ever say to you, your family is a picture? Well, no, that would be absurd. They would know that that's a picture of your family. In the same way, baptism does not save. It is a picture of the salvation that we have. Now, the confusion that happens in Reformed is it seems on the one hand they'll admit that, yes, this does not save you. It's only a sign of the salvation you have, but they equivocate on it. And so for the Reformed, it's a sign of the new covenant entrance into it, like you and I believe by faith alone. But all of a sudden they will add to it. It's also a means or an avenue of entrance into the new covenant for babies. Are you with me? So that's where the sleight of hand happens. And all of a sudden, salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, all by his grace alone, starts to go out the window. Why? Because we have to make the church identical to Israel. Therefore, circumcision is now baptism. Do you see the error? That's what they're doing. Now, let me give you a quote that shows us from their their own lips, as it were, Westminster and Calvin, that indeed... They believe that baptism is a means by which children can enter into the new covenant community. Listen to this. It says, uh, I'm trying to think of which one I want to use here. Here's Westminster. Westminster is claiming here that it brings, uh, baptism brings one into the new covenant community. It says, quote, The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, notwithstanding by the right use of this ordinance, the grace of promised is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, it says, whether of age or infants is that grace belongeth unto according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. I know, I, I don't, that's the end of the quote. Notice the unto, there's a lot of language that happens from the 1600s but the point is the Holy Spirit will use the rite of baptism in his own time to bring about grace and salvation in the life of those who are baptized. And they say, whether of age or infants. Uh, Okay, so does everyone hear that? Baptism will be used in order to bring about people into the new covenant. That's the claim that Westminster Confession is making. Yes, Lonnie. Well, I I was just wondering if you could define these two. I I don't know if you define them before. Four, but uh, I was just wondering when you say Reformed and when you say Westminster and when you say Heidelberg, um, what does that really mean? Yeah, so Calvin, he has writings. He has uh, some some of Calvin's writings from what the Reformed tradition borrows from. They their leader, as it were, was Calvin. Some of it comes from his institutes. And there was, I forget how many books, four books at least, of his institutes. I've been primarily looking at his fourth book. But there's also the Westminster Confession, which occurs in Scotland about 100 years later. Well, about 20 years after that, there was a Heidelberg Confession in Heidelberg, Germany. And the reason why Heidelberg is sometimes used by people of Reformed who follow Calvin is because they consider the Heidelberg Confession the most ecumenical, not in the sense of being ecumenical with other religions or ecumenical with other denominations, but ecumenical among fellow followers of Calvin. Does that make sense? There's also a Belgaic Confession. There's a Synod of Dort. There's so many. But for our purposes, we're going to primarily be looking at Calvin's own writings, Westminster and at times Heidelberg. Does that make sense? So these are just confessions that were written down where they tried to put their stamp 
in a point in time saying this is the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And what Bob and I have been rejecting is to say, wait a minute, isn't your confession necessarily a declaration of the inadequacy of Scripture? Because we thought that the major Reformed doctrine was Scripture alone. That's why Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. Unless I am convinced by reason in Scripture, he would not recant. Remember that at the Diet of Worms? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point being is Scripture alone is our final authority. These confessions are an attack on that implicitly. Because what they're claiming is, well, if you differ with our confession, you're outside the faith. Well, wait a minute. What if your confession is outside what the Scripture is teaching? And that's exactly what we're showing. We're showing that, wait a minute, their confession is to them the once and for all handed down to the saints' faith, but it doesn't line up with what the Scriptures are saying. So that's the rub. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, to prove that, I have, I went to the website of one of the Lutheran denominations, and it says right in the beginning that our confession is binding yes. because it's all biblical. That's in other right. words, trust us, our confession writers made nowhere, so it's binding. Right. So we would say, yeah, if something is bi- biblical, yes. it is binding because it came from Christ and his apostles. Yes. But they're putting it something between Christ and the apostles and us, and that's their confession. Right. Now, that's right. a Lutheran one I found. Yeah. But if you start reading somebody's, quote, dogmatics, yeah. and they're continually citing whichever confession their denomination holds, yeah. as if that were full and final proof, therefore you have to do this, then I would say, why did you reject the Reformation yeah. and go back to the traditions of man? Right. All they can say is, ours is better than Rome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I, I would agree, yours is better than Rome, and maybe this is better than this one. But are you thinking we're all so stupid that no Christian ever will arise in history who's able to go to Scripture and do sound acts of Jesus, that Luther and Calvin were the last two to ever be able to do that? Right, amen. And if you just say that, now not only have you denied Scripture alone, you denied the priesthood of every believer, and Luther just went to bat for the priesthood of every believer. So that way... The Pope can't control anybody. Right. Because the humblest believer with the truth of the Scripture can correct the Pope. Right. And that was considered worthy of launching a war over back in those days. Well said, Bob. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Peter, oh, I'm sorry. You had, oh, nope. All right. Okay, all right, gotcha. You know, let me give you another quote from Calvin. I want you to see here that infants, according to Calvin, can be regenerated and brought into the new covenant community through baptism. And it's necessary, according to Calvin, their baptism, to remove original sin. Now, by him claiming that, he's really going back to Augustine, but also the Catholic Church. Listen to what he says. This is from his Institutes 416. It's the fourth book, 16th chapter, 17th paragraph. He says, quote, now it is perfectly clear that those infants who are to be saved, and he says in parentheses, as some surely are saved from an early age, are previously regenerated by the Lord. For if they bear with them an inborn corruption from the mother's womb, they must be cleansed of it before they can be admitted into God's kingdom, for nothing polluted or defiled may enter there. So for Calvin... The means of wiping away original sin for infants happens in baptism. Now, here's a passage that I want to use to show you that if, in fact, the biblical writers intended baptism to wash away an infant's sin, I want you to think about whether or not the Apostle Paul could have written what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and specifically verses 14 through 17. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 14 through 17. And as we read these verses, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. As we read these verses, let's ask ourselves, would Paul have said this if, in fact, 
baptism was necessary to remove the original sin of infants so that they could enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17. Notice Paul says, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none, excuse me, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. So let's just stop there in verse 14. Paul was thankful to God that he had baptized none except a few that he was writing to. Now, if in fact baptism was the means of entrance into the new covenant community, into the kingdom of God for infants, would Paul have said that? Paul would be saying, I took away and I did not baptize, which is the only means of removal of sins for, for infants who die at infancy. That's what he'd be saying. Okay, so I, to me, that's very difficult for Paul to say that if he believes that it's necessary to save infants. Now, continuing on in verse 16, notice he admits that he did baptize some, but notice what he is focused on. He says, now I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Verse 17, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul went to preach the gospel because it's believing the gospel that takes people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's why he focused on the preaching of the gospel. Baptism is a picture of the salvation that we have once we believe the gospel. Again, don't be like the person who says, your family's a picture. No, this is a picture of my family. Baptism is a picture of salvation, but it is not the means of salvation in and of itself. That's why Paul could say, I am thankful to God that I didn't baptize hardly any of you. Again, could he say that if the Reformed tradition is correct, that baptism is the means of removal of original sin for infants? I don't think he would. Yeah, Eric. I I just can't resist. This is... To me, anyway, it's kind of humorous because if baptism was such a monumental thing that saved people, you know, Paul is saying here, you know, I, I might have baptized some other people, but I'm not sure. Yes. You know, don't you think he would have remembered? Right. <laughs> Good point, Eric. Excellent. Yes, that's right. You'd think that would, that would be very critical if it was the means of regeneration. Now, to be fair, Calvin, um, let me say this. Does everyone know the Roman Catholic view of baptism? The Roman Catholic view is something called ex opere operato. It means by the work done. If someone is baptized, whether you're an infant or an adult, you're regenerated. And you're saved. And how long are you saved until until you sin? (laughs) Which should be the next moment, right? So not much of a salvation. (laughs) But it's by the act done. You're baptized, you're in. You're saved, you're regenerated. Calvin and the Reformers are, are clear that they don't believe that, but yet at times they seem to go back to it. And that's my point, is they seem to equivocate. On one hand, they rightly want to distance themselves from that ex opere operato, and yet as they wrestle with getting away from Rome, they still take on parts and remnants of the Roman doctrine. That's, that's our whole point. Yeah. I was just going to, last week we talked about some verses that they used to, you know, try to solidify their position. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can just clarify the word household with the jailer and his whole household, you know, if you believe and be baptized. And because a lot of people will use that in that term, household is infants. Yeah, exactly right. By the way, let me just turn your attention. I gave a message, um, I don't remember what year it was, but you can find it on our website. It's a message on baptism. And I deal with every instance of a household being baptized in the New Testament, what you'll find out in the book of Acts is that the only households where you see that, yes, they were baptized, all of them, where it's explicit that they believed is where you had people who were old enough to believe. What's very interesting is when you have whole households baptized, it never states, in many cases, the age So to read into that the idea that there were certainly infants among them is simply to read in something that isn't stated. That's the big issue that you want to see. So in other words, I would not appeal to it to prove 
believer's baptism, nor would I appeal to those passages to prove infant baptism. They simply state that the whole household was baptized. We have to look elsewhere when we want to determine who was baptized. Was it believer's or was it for infants? And that, that argument has to be answered elsewhere. So the point is, the household baptisms, it just simply says that. Well, how old were the household? How old were the individuals within the household? We, we're not told. Do, do, are you with me? So that's the sleight of hand that's played on. They will say, well, obviously there had to be infants. Well, no, there, it's not obvious. I have a household right now. My youngest is nine, right? There's many people who have households who their kids are in their teens or 20s. Uh, so the point being is that doesn't prove anything, yeah. But, but good question. And again, you can see the actual examples of that in that message on baptism. I did it around the time I was teaching in Romans 6. That's when I taught it. It was a special message on baptism. October 30th. Oh, thank you, Christy. Baptism, the sign of being united with Christ. October 30th, what year was it? 2016. 2016. October 30th, 2016. You can look that up. And I deal with every single household issue that Luann just brought up. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Thank you, Christy, for... Okay, yeah, thank you for doing that. That's excellent. Now, let's talk. We've talked about the Reformed tradition, what they believe. They believe, again, that baptism is the sign and the means of entrance into the new covenant. What we're claiming is it's not a means of entrance into the new covenant. It is a sign only of entrance into the new covenant. So let's talk positively for a moment about what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes three things. The first is washing away of sin. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 22.16. I just want you to show, show you how this is used uh, oftentimes by the New Testament writers. Here's Acts 22.16. The washing away of sin. You also see the idea in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Remember, that's where Paul had said, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor slanders, revilers, etc., etc., will enter in the kingdom of God, but so were some of you, but you were washed. Okay, so this idea of washing is something that occurs at regeneration when God brings us into his kingdom through faith in Christ, but baptism symbolizes it. Acts twenty two sixteen. notice it says, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So remember in the book of Acts, those who are baptized, that is synonymous with those who have saving faith. So if you have saving faith, which is emphasized here by the calling on of his name, you're to be baptized. Why are you baptized? Because it symbolizes the salvation that you have. So there's this element of washing away our sins, and it is indicated or uh, pictured in baptism. We see it in Titus 3.5. We see it in many other places. In fact, that's the other thing I want to point out. The second idea that's presented in baptism is regeneration. In fact, turn your Bibles to Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5. I'm going to have to grab my Bible. I don't have the quote in here. Titus 3.5. I want you to see, you'll actually see regeneration and washing here. Uh-oh. I did. Sorry. Oh, now what did I do? Uh, relaunch your PowerPoint. Go back to that slide. I'll try this. Aha! Are you a Calvinist? Certainly not. <laughs> but we do. We'll, we'll, yeah, they don't want us. But we'll show that we do believe in some things that Calvin certainly believed, and we'll show that later here. Okay, here's where we are. Does anyone have Titus 3.5 that they could read? Uh, Brian, do you have it by chance? Oh, uh, Peter, thank you. Is Okay. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then notice, the, uh, read the next part of the of verse 6 there. Could you read that, verse 6? And Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Does everybody see that, the through Jesus Christ our Savior? The through there is a preposition of means. So Jesus Christ was the means by which we were renewed. 
And this washing of regeneration is exactly what was promised in the Old Covenant. Like Ezekiel 36.25, in fact, if you're a note-taker, as soon as you see Titus 3.5, you should jot down and have in your mind Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel 36.25, where God promised in the New Covenant that he would sprinkle clean water on his people, that he would make them clean. So this is the same idea of the regeneration of the heart. So baptism, when you and I are submerged, it really is a symbol of this regeneration, this washing away of our sins. But it's only a symbol of it. It does not perform it as the Catholics claim. It is not a rite that ex opere operato, by the act done, performs it. It is a symbol of it. Now, here's the primary symbolism, though, behind baptism, and that is our union with Christ. And I've got several passages that I want to turn to to look at that. Oh, though, you know what? Before I do that, who had uh, John 3? I gave John 3. Oh, Bob has that. Would you read John 3, 3 through 5? This is about regeneration as well. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his, his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So does everyone hear that in verse 5? Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what baptism symbolizes, but it does not perform. Roman Catholics will take that verse and say, well, why don't you believe that baptism does it? Here Jesus is using it. But keep reading, Bob, into verse 8. Or just, in fact, verse 8, I think. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And by the way, the water and the Spirit is disputed. Does it mean baptism? And the Holy Spirit, or what? What? And right. because there's ambiguity. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, recently got a great commentary on John that I didn't previously yeah, own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, J. Ramsey Michaels. Okay. But and I think it was him. But one of my commentaries pointed out the Kai there is probably a water, of, even the Spirit, or namely even. Be- yeah. yeah, or namely the Spirit. Yeah. Because uh, elsewhere, Jesus uses that. In that Amen. way. Amen. Well said, Bob. So do you hear Bob is talking about this and there? And he's saying that the, the chi in Greek should be used what's called ostensively, which means it's not and, but even or namely. Yeah. In other words, they're one and the same. And anyhow, I think it was Michael's. I don't want to attribute to him unless it was, but I think so. Yeah. But there were many other cases where you look in... Um, John in water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Yes, oh, exactly. I think you're exactly right. So listen, why is that important? Think about what was the promise in the Old Testament? The work of the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Remember in Joel chapter 2, in the last days I will pour out my spirit, right? There's a constant right. reference to water and the pouring out of the spirit. Right. In fact, turn, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36.25. Let's look at that so you'll see another reference to water. Everybody turn to Ezekiel 36. 25. Let's look at that. This is the passage I think is in the mind of Jesus as he's teaching what he is in John 3, 3 through 8 there. Yeah, Ezekiel 36, 25. Yeah, there you go. So notice this is a promise for the new covenant. 36.25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Notice verse 26. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, a heart of flesh, sometimes we as new covenant believers will say, wait, heart of flesh? That's a sinful heart. Not in its usage. It's contrasted with the heart of stone. A heart of stone is one that cannot respond to God. It'd be like being stiff-necked. You can't respond to God. You're always of unbelief. But a heart of flesh would be one that's responsive to God. Yes, Bob. More evidence that water is used in John 
as it was there, uh, of the Spirit. That's right. Uh, Later, in John 7, Jesus says, um, in verse 37, on the last most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. This he said about the spirit. Amen. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. Right. So there's a link in John 7 between water and the spirit. And so since John uses it that way, it's likely the case exactly. that the water in John 3 is just another way of saying even the spirit. Amen. Well said. That's exactly right. So let's go back to John 3. I just want to prove a point to you that you can use with Roman Catholics. Turn back to verse 8 that Bob had read. John 3, 8. Remember, what are the Roman Catholics claiming that John 3 is teaching? They're claiming that teaches baptism is necessary for salvation and regenerates. But baptism cannot be in mind. It's the work of the Spirit. Because notice, what does he say in verse 8? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So think about the Roman Catholic Church. If baptism regenerates, you could control that. You can set up a baptismal font, and you just keep bringing people, and they're just going to get regenerated by the act done. But what Jesus is describing is something that cannot be controlled. It's like the wind, he says. You can't control, how many in here can control the wind? Maybe with a fan, you can a little bit in your room, but that's it, you can't control the wind. He says, so it is with the work of the Spirit. The Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does what he wills. For some he regenerates, and some he does not. And so it's the work of the Spirit that's being referred to, not baptism. Yes, Lonnie. So then in um, John 3, 8 here, could you say that that's the the wind is uh, the the action of the wind is actually election? No, I would say that he's simply making the point that the, the as the Holy Spirit does what He wants, yeah. making the analogy between that and the wind. You can't control the wind in the same way you can't control the Holy Spirit. And by the way, um, wind or ruach in Hebrew is often used as the spirit. Remember, God bro- blows life into them. Yeah. Ruach, the wind. Well, so there's a play on that word. Doesn't well. God control election? Oh, absolutely. Yep. So, that, that's, but that's not what that passage okay. is yep. alluding okay. to. And yep. then, we'll find that somewhere else, like okay. in John oh, 6. Okay, I see. But You know, you were saying uh, a little bit before here in John 3 something about the use of the word and, uh, Kai, could yep. not necessarily yeah. mean just and only, but... It doesn't necessarily contrast two different things or enumerate two different things. In some context, it can mean even or... Namely. Yeah, namely. Exactly. Yeah, namely would be a good way to say it. Yeah. Water, so, namely the spirit. Exactly. That's, really? that's, that's not always... But there are many such uses, enough of them in the Greek New Testament to make it one of the possibilities. And when you look elsewhere in John and see how uh, water is used, as in, like I said, in John 7, I think that I, I struggled with that for decades, frankly, that passage. Yeah. And I didn't have the best resources and my knowledge of Greek wasn't as good as it is now. And more recently, when I looked at it again, I was convinced by this argument, it makes more sense. Amen. In other words, you don't have to be baptized and receive the Spirit as two separate acts, Amen. as some people will say. That's so, right. and, it's not and, but it's even. Well, it means namely, there, yep. namely. Mainly. Namely. The water... Namely. Namely, the Spirit. Yep. I'll find that. I think it was J. Ramsey Michaels, but I'll, I'll look it up for sure. I don't bring my computer to church. I have too much stuff to haul the way it is. <laughs> and Lonnie, the way that works, the way you know whether it's just going to be an and 
or what's here as Bob is labeling it, the ascensive use of chi. How do you know which it is? It's context. And what, what the good students of the word are doing is they're saying, wait a minute, throughout John, Jesus is always linking the work of the spirit to being like water. So more than likely, he's saying one and the same thing. The, the water isn't the point. It's what it symbolizes. The wind isn't the point. It's what it symbolizes, which is what? The work of the Spirit. God poured out his Spirit like water. He blows his Spirit upon people like wind. So the wind and the water are just metaphors referring to the work of the Spirit. Here's the point. Baptism symbolizes, therefore, what the Spirit does. But John 3 is not saying that water in baptism saves us. Jesus is saying you have to be born again by the work of the Spirit who enables us to believe the gospel. Therefore, when we believe upon Christ, we are in his kingdom. Yeah, there's something similar in 1 Corinthians 10 where there's a warning against apostasy. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Amen. Great So reference. if you look at the analogies going on there, you have coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, coming to Moses, the rock is Christ. Water came from the rock. Amen. Right? And we're indwelt by Christ, that is, through the Holy Spirit. I think the simple act of baptizing an infant doesn't equate. <laughs> doesn't equate. That's right. Well said. Now, Bob, I'm so glad you had that verse. That leads us into what is the primary meaning behind baptism? When someone is baptized, what's the primary issue? It's about identity. Baptism symbolizes who you're with. Okay, now let me bring you on a little bit of historical overview of baptism. Bob gave us a great segue in 1 Corinthians 10. But let's begin back with Noah and his family. Noah and his family, according to 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 19, they had a form of baptism. That is, the whole world was deluged and destroyed, but there was one family, those of believers, there were eight people that were saved through a form of baptism. So baptism was the idea that this family was now identified. Okay, they were identified together through the floodwaters, and they were the ones who were saved from the deluge. Bob just read 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul himself says that as the Israelites went through the Red Sea, it was like baptism. In fact, he says they were baptized into Moses. They were identifying with him. So here the people of God are baptized through the Red Sea, and even if they wanted to go back to Egypt, they could not. Why? Because the Red Sea had closed in. There's no going back to Egypt. That's part of the symbolism of our baptism. Once you're baptized, there's no going back to Egypt anymore. That's all washed away. Water didn't help the Egyptians. Yeah, the water, exactly right, Bob. Water did not help the Egyptians. So here's the question. When the Israelites go through the Red Sea and are baptized with Moses, where did they go? They went into the wilderness for 40 years where they failed. Jesus, in the third chapter of Matthew, was baptized. Now, why was Jesus baptized? Certainly, he didn't need remission of sin. No, this is what shows us it's about identity. By Jesus being baptized, he's identifying with us. Because right after his baptism in, in Matthew chapter 4, where does he go? He goes into the wilderness just like Israel did, but he was faithful in 40 days where they fell in 40 years. So he's a faithful son that no human being could, could ever be. He's the faithful one. So when you and I are baptized into him, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the idea is we're with him. There's no going back to Egypt. We're on this final exodus. We're heading towards the promised land. There's no going back. We're with him. A great passage that proves this about identity is Romans 6. Let's end on Romans 6. And here you're going to see this idea of being identified positionally with Christ. You're with him. You're dead with him. You're alive with him. And as we read in Romans 6, verses 1 through 6, you're going to see this reference to death and to life. Well, certainly you and I aren't physically dead, otherwise we wouldn't be reading this. So he's talking positionally. Positionally, you and I are dead with him. 
We're dead to the old world. Uh, the Israelites were dead to Egypt. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. It was washed away, as it were. That's the symbolism of baptism. It's who you're with. Romans 6, 1 through 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How, now notice what he says. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Stop there. When did you die to sin? The moment you trusted upon Jesus Christ. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of your heart. And just like in the Exodus, you were passed over. God passed over your sins. Just as that event was then followed by the baptism through the Red Sea, so it is with us. We are now baptized because we're with him. We're baptized because it symbolizes what is true. Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Stop there. Look at the identity. You and I haven't physically died. So he certainly can't say that you and I physically died. What he's saying is positionally we're with him. As he died, we're dead. We're dead to the old world. We're dead to sin. Think about, go back to Noah's family. Could they go back to the old world if they wanted to? No, it was done. It was washed away. Could the Israelites go back to Egypt? No, it's washed away. Same with us. We're with Christ. We're dead to the old world. We're dead to Egypt. We're dead to the old things. So he continues, verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Aha! So this is something baptism depicts. When we go down into the water, we're dead, we're submerged, but when we come up, it's to the newness of life. All the old world has been washed away. That's part of the symbolism. Why? Because we're with Christ. Verse 5, For if we have become united with him, notice the union, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now listen to the purpose statement. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When Israel was baptized, they were no longer slaves in Egypt. When you're baptized, it's a symbol that you're no longer a slave to sin. You also are in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And there's no going back to Egypt. Baptism is about who you're with. And the moment you were baptized, you were being reminded that the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were forever with him. That's why baptism is only done once. It's not done over and over. Was Israel baptized through the Red Sea more than once? Was Noah's family baptized more than once? We do it once. Why? Because you've left Egypt once and for all the moment you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, I just want to make sure. I, I have struggled, uh, you know, over the years with some of this. Yeah. And, for example, in verse 3, yep. where he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Yes. I, I think as you look at all of the uses of the word baptized, the, the early Christian church, they knew that the baptism was just a, it was a public proclamation of their faith. It was, they, they were, you know, identified as Christians. And so what we need to understand when we read this, I think, and this is actually a question, when, when, they, use, when they just use the term baptism by itself, I believe that the early Christians that was almost like a shorthand term for believe, repent, yes. you know, all of it. And that, then right. the, that was just a shorthand term for it. I, I, and I think that helps us as we read, because people will take one verse here and there and That's say, right. oh, that means that, that baptism all by itself will, will save you, which is not true if you look at all of the, exactly all of the right. uses and Scripture proving Scripture. I Amen. think that's the case, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So they're used almost interchangeably. If you're baptized, it's because you believed. And if you believed, it's because you repented. And if you repented, it's because you believed. And if you repented and believed, you're baptized. So you can use it all interchangeably. You're absolutely right. There is, it's a misnomer to say that there was someone who was baptized that didn't believe. Now, saying that, are there people who are baptized who don't believe? Oh, yes. But my point is, it's an ordinance 
ordained by Christ for those who believe. Just like there are those who will take the Lord's Supper and they have nothing to do with Christ. Why? Because they don't believe. But the ordinance is for the believer. Okay, and we'll, we'll handle the Lord's Supper next time. I'm sorry we only got through baptism in this time. But um, in fact, well, we don't have time. We'll do one more quote that Brian had from Acts 19. I just want to prove that baptism is about identity. There's many passages that will show you that. If you look at that October 30th, 2016 message on baptism, I show you passage after passage that proves baptism is about who you're with. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you're with him. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. That salvation isn't by some work that we do, but that it's by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by your gracious work alone. We do thank you, Lord, that baptism does symbolize this, and we pray for clarity in our minds, that we'd always look at our baptisms fondly as a day that we remember that we're once and for all with you, that we're heading through the, the wilderness on the way to the promised land, and that there's no going back to Egypt anymore. We pray that you'd settle that deep in our hearts, so that we persevere into that day that we reach the promised land in Jesus' name. Amen.